we tried to sing that sunshine in here, singing You Shine and all those other songs, but you know what? It's a glorious day anyway. Because He does shine through, doesn't He? Everybody's just hungry to see that sunshine again. He says, we'll appreciate it when we see it. Can you imagine when we see Him on that glorious day when all the light is shining upon Him like we've never seen before? But you know what? Most of the people in the world, and that includes billions of people, billions of people have misunderstood the most important person in the world. And they've missed it. He is the most misunderstood person that's ever lived on this earth. All the history of mankind. Literally. All these billions of people. And Jesus says, few there be that find it. Most people take Jesus, if they've heard of Him, in some other way than the way the Bible describes Him. And so that's uh, what we'll be looking at today. Jesus showed exactly who He was whenever He came to earth. The Old Testament had been building up to that and showing what the Messiah was all about. But whenever He uh, showed Himself in uh, this incarnation is the most complete way up to that time. So Jesus, as far as having a ministry, He was misunderstood by the people then. Just like today. But it wasn't because he didn't make contact. Because he sure made contact with people, didn't he? And he did make an impact, didn't he? So contact and impact. That's not an outline, so you don't have to take those notes if you like. But it, it helps you think of what he was doing. He, he didn't hide in some corner or have some little cult group, you know, in some place like in Nazareth. And that was as far as it went. It went all over Israel. And, of course, it spread all over the world. But he did make an impact on the nation of Israel through his preaching, teaching, his healing. What an impact he made. Nobody has ever even come close to that. And he did it with clarity. It wasn't that he said things that people could not understand. He made it very clear. He was the teacher of all teachers. And he did it with authority. And so that it did change lives. And it came from God. He is God. So he was clear. And his teaching was with authority. And the people even admitted that, didn't they? We have never heard any teacher like this. One who teaches with authority. They knew what he meant. And hearts changed because of it, inwardly. Now, as he preached and continued to preach and heal, and the crowds just kept building up. Remember, every week it seems like we're saying the same thing, aren't we? The crowds are building up even more. And there's an, a, such an immense amount of people that it is getting scary for Jesus Steve, to be among the crowd. It is so huge. And they're all just wanting to get a look uh, at him, they all want to touch him, feel him. They all want to be uh, healed, or they just want to see what's going on. You know how things are whenever the hottest thing is going. People have to be there and have to be there in person. And Jesus, Jesus had to get away. And you remember, he went up on the mountain and he chose the twelve apostles. So he now has them with him officially now in this ministry. He had to get away from the crowd, though, to do that. Can you imagine trying to appoint the apostles with all that noise and the people around him? So as he often would do, he would do that. Of course, we know that he first would pray 
and uh, then he would uh, do his action, which he did there with them. So we realize there uh, is an extreme pressure on Jesus, and we started talking about that a couple of weeks ago. The pressure of everyday life on him was incredible. We can't imagine how much pressure it was. You think you've had pressure? He really did have pressure upon him. He had pressure that was coming from the Pharisees, the scribes. Every day, it seems like they were always there to confront him. How would you like to, every time you would open your mouth, there would come these religious elite people trying to shut you down. Now, they're not only just trying to shut him down, they're, they want to kill him, right? They already made, are making plans. But not only those religious elite, but you have the demons. The demons who are being cast out of the people now, you know, are saying, there's Jesus Christ, He's Lord of all, you know, whatever, you know. And they're saying those things. He doesn't need that kind of advertising at all. Not from them. But, uh, so, there it is them. And, you also have the crowds that are just thronging around him. and So we've seen in the last couple of weeks the pressure that he has and how he coped with it. And of course, the biggest thing of coping was whenever he'd go up to the mountain, he would have prayer. And then he had the disciples now with him, and so now he is going to share. He's going to share the ministry. He's going to take a load off him by giving it to them, which they're going to take out. And eventually, after he dies and resurrects, then they're going to take it out everywhere. But he's training them to do that. So he knows exactly what he's doing and the exact perfect timing. The message is going to be spread out broadly. And with these 12 men, of course one of them will turn on him, but there will be a 12th then appointed. He was very popular. Would you say that he was popular when he was here? Would you say that everybody had heard of him? I think it would be safe to say everybody there in Israel had heard of him somehow. Uh, That didn't mean everybody was for him. (laughs) Now, he had tremendous crowds, but we remember that uh, they were believing on him, as it says in John 2, but he was not entrusting in them. He knew what was in their hearts. As a whole, most of them, yeah, they believed, but they didn't really believe that it would make an impact in their own lives that they would change. We can believe things. We can believe the Bible and say it's all true and everything, but if He doesn't make an impact on our lives, that means absolutely nothing. And that's really what's happening with all these crowds. Most of these people, they know that He can do miracles. And they believe what He's saying. But they're not really taking Him in. You have to eat of Me, He says in John 6. Partake of Me, That's what it's about. It's not just an intellectual knowledge. Well, another pressure that he has, as we'll be looking at this week, is that his own people are going to be around, and they're not too pleased with what he's doing. This is his own people. He's famous. You would have thought that these people would just be saying, yeah, yeah, he used to live right next door to me. Or his brother saying, he's my brother. Can you believe what he's doing? Look at all the healings that he's been doing. I mean, look at the crowds. Yeah, that's my brother. No, no, no. That's not the way his family is taking it and people uh, that were around him that knew him. He's getting it from all sides, folks. 
from the religious elite, from the demons, from the crowds, and the people that he grew up with, his own family, the pressure of opposition. He's getting opposition from the people that you would least likely think that would give him opposition. Wow. So, uh, I think that is something you thought you would think they'd be backing him up here. That they'd be impressed with him. (laughs) They're not impressed at all. And I want to tell you, when you get involved in the service of the Lord, and many of you found out that uh, not always are you found favorable. Matter of fact, much of the time you can be in opposition to people because of who you believe, because of Christ. So uh, we are going to uh, open our Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 3 and verse 20, and, and this is the Word of God, right? The Word of God is here. He's speaking to us today. 2,000 years ago, and you can say, oh, that's just one of those stories I've heard before, and you can tend to shut these things off. Or you can say, I want this to freshly come into my mind and my heart, and I want to see what was really happening there at that time and how this then applies to me and everybody around me. How can this work? It's not just an intellectual exercise that we do here because we're inviting Christ to teach us, right? Holy Spirit with His power will make uh, an indelible um, impression upon our minds here. So let's start at verse 20. Let's read the very Word of God. This came from Him. Wow. And He came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. And when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, He has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he's finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven, the sons of men. And whatsoever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers arrived. And standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God... He is my brother and sister and mother. Let's sit at the feet of Jesus today here. What a teacher. What an amazing thing that is going on here. This is incredible. And he came home. He's been out ministering, been all out over Galilee, 
with the disciples. He'd been on the mountain. He had chosen them. We've already gone through that. Now he comes home. And we're not talking about Nazareth here. We're talking probably Capernaum here. You remember, that's his headquarters. And quite frequently, he goes back there. But when he goes back home, it's just like there's somebody there like a watchman on a tower looking for Jesus to come. And there he comes, and he probably sends word, and everybody in the whole town is surrounding Jesus again. I mean, he can't get through even the back door. You know, or if he does, immediately somebody saw him or heard about it. You know, he, he can't hide anywhere in Capernaum. Can you imagine? It had to be really hard to sleep. Matter of fact, it was really hard to eat. Sometimes they didn't eat. Might not have gone to eat all day because of these crowds. That's kind of what it's saying here as we move down this verse. Uh, so anyway, you, you remember Capernaum, that's the place where the man was lowered down through the roof. You know, we all like that story. That's the same place where Jesus had uh, healed Peter's mother-in-law of her sickness, right? A lot of other things had happened there. We, miracle after miracle. I mean, just amazing things. It's, you know, his teaching has been immense. It, it's, it's just overwhelming. And so there are people. And uh, as we see here, that the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. That's, that's how crowded this always is. It's, it's almost like a zoo with all these people around. It's a good thing, but a lot of the people's intents are not there for a Savior. I mean, they want a king that will deliver them out of their bondage from Rome. That's one of the things that people want. Or they're there just for their own selves, their own healing or whatever. And it's really not about Christ. I mean, it is, but at the same time... um, they're 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 just there. Uh, Jesus is going to attract a crowd. When his own people heard of this, now that's interesting. The word "own people" in some uh, versions will even say family. Um, it could be friends. So that word "own people" can be uh, somewhat misleading to the very extent of what the word means there. Most often, it it probably means his own family. And it's like we have a sandwich here. You have a piece of bread on one side, right? A piece of bread on the other, and then you have something in between there. Well, that's what we have from verses 20 through 35. And in verse 20, and um, 20, basically 20, verse 21, you have this one slice of bread. And then when we get into verse 31 through 35, then you'll see the other slice because then it starts talking about his uh, immediate family, mother and brothers, uh, you know, his sisters, uh, people who he was kin to. And that's kind of what own people means, his kin. So there might have been cousins there, there might have been friends, there might have been a whole lot of them. But everybody's hearing about this. And finally they say, hey guys, we've we got to do something about this. this he, he's just gone nuts. I mean, this is crazy. Look at the crowd. I mean, he grew up in our family. He's from Nazareth. What is this that's going on? This this is horrible. That's the way they're taking it. They're scared to death for him. So they want to save him. (laughs) Well, news, we know, filters back, gets back to the people. So there they are. And they're not bragging about him. Now, 
Um, there are people who will say, and many of you might have believed this at one time, and uh, then you came to the conclusion that Jesus actually had brothers and sisters, uh, as far as half-brothers and sisters. In John chapter 7, and I know that they will take that word, and they will say, well, brothers and sisters, you are my brothers and sisters, just like Jesus says here, who are my brothers and sisters? And they'll say, well, that means anybody. But when they name the names, <laughs> and they tell who they are, and it's like he's talking about the immediate family. I think we don't have to guess and just presume that, well, maybe he did have brothers and sisters. We can know for a fact. In John 7, verse 5, um, it's a feast of booze. Uh, Christ's brothers are in, involved here. And they're telling Jesus, you need to go there and make yourself known. Okay, For not even his brothers were believing in him. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Now, if that was just anybody, brothers means, hey, somebody out there on the street, that's my brother out there. Look at that, you know. Uh, that's my brother. He, he plays on, uh, on my baseball team, right? We're brothers, but not really kin to each other. Well, if he would say that, it doesn't make any sense um, because there are a lot of people that are not believing in him, you know, trust in trusting in him. And so it, it makes a point here, not even his brothers were believing in him. Now that makes an impact there, doesn't it? If you back up to verse 2, it says, Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you're doing. This is some other time that's happening here, but he, they're just saying, uh, they're kind of making fun of him, you know, in a way, and saying, hey, listen, uh, won't you just, you need to go to the Feast of Booths and show everybody who you are and take your disciples with you. And Jesus said, it's not my time. That's another thing. Anyway, he, he winds up going there secretly to the feast. Uh, if you turn now to Mark 6.3, you get it very clear here. Uh, Jesus is rejected at Nazareth there. Uh, his own hometown, right? His own hometown. His disciples are with Him and He's teaching in the synagogue. And we get into verse 3. And the people say, is this not the carpenter? I mean, He was a carpenter for quite some years. I would say that He probably learned from Joseph the carpenter. And I would say He was probably young when he learned that trade. And you can imagine when he got into his teens and his late teens, he probably got pretty good. And then all throughout his 20s, what was he doing? Well, he was a carpenter. This is the carpenter. Does everybody in Nazareth know the carpenter? Well, sure they do. Everybody knows everybody in Nazareth. Everybody is kin to somebody, right? They all know everybody. It's uh, it's a lot smaller than Taos, Missouri. I mean, you know, everybody knows everybody there. They're all kin to everybody. And everybody knows everybody, right? But uh, isn't this the carpenter? Uh, he's, he's teaching in our synagogue. This is the son of Mary. You know, there's nothing formidable about those folks. Carpenters were not rich people at all. And a brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us? Now... There's already people there. There's brothers and sisters on the outward side, but now I think this is very clear. I don't think there is with. I don't think there's a doubt at all here. Do you guys see a doubt here? Well, that that means anybody. He, who are they? Well, it's it's James. Did he have a half brother by the name of James? Joseph, Judas, 
Jude, the book of Jude, and Simon, that's not Peter, Simon Peter wrote another Simon, and uh, are not his sisters here with us? They took offense at him. And, of course, Jesus as a prophet is not welcome in his own hometown, right? That's what's happening. And so we can see that um, those are brothers and sisters. And uh, it's good to know that because there will be people that will tell you that he never had brothers and sisters. And I will guarantee you, 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 you have the scripture to show them. And then they start dancing around it and they'll start uh, quoting um, different people. They won't, they won't go to scripture, but they'll go to other places, other people, back to the early days of the church, 4th century, 5th century. But we have scripture that is the authority that tells us, naming names. Okay. Now, in Matthew 10, we're talking about family here and family relations. Good thing, great thing, we highly extol it, we have preached, we've taught about it, we put the family way up there. But it's never over God. Never. Or it's idolatry. There is a time when family can become idolatrous. And that's even the best of things. It can turn into idolatry. Matthew 10 said, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. If you experience hostility in the home because of your faith, well, just take it that um, Christ talked about that. And many of you have experienced that. And that is a tough thing. It is hard whenever the family rejects you because you have trusted in Christ alone and not their church or their belief system, or their family. Maybe you choose to go to church rather than a family outing that they have constantly, like almost every week. (laughs) Anything they can do to keep you from going to church to worship God. So we've all understood how that happens, but what that is is fellowshipping in the sufferings of Christ. So uh, be careful. Be, Be thanking God for the family you have the children, the parents, um, brothers, sisters, and, and on and on. It's, it is a, a blessing from God. One of the best blessings we can have. That's where everything starts. But it can be very dangerous and it has cost people eternity because they chose their family. Even though they knew the truth, they chose the family because they didn't want to offend their family. They didn't want to offend the family and their church or their beliefs or whatever they did. And they were cut off if if they would leave uh, them and go to the church. And that's what happened to Judaism. As far as people come out of Judaism, they lost their jobs, they lost their homes, they lost their families, everything. People just cut them off. Cut off from the tabernacle, no place to worship or anything. It's pretty tough. Well, anyway, so much for the family. I, I covered a lot of that. And when we get into the last section of dealing with family, we'll already have that. And we'll probably be go through in that really quick from 31 through 35. So be ready. We'll, we'll, we'll uh, 
go on a roller coaster ride here. They uh, want to take custody. Own people heard of this and they went out to take custody of him. What that means is that they're going to arrest him. <laughs> custody, right? That's, and that's the idea. That's what the Greek means. To arrest him. They're going to forcibly take him out of the situation. That's what they have in mind. That's their plan. they got it all together here. Ugh. Their family reputation is being shot. What are what is he doing? You know, they don't want him to be identified, you know, with them, but they better retrieve him out of there though. So they're willing to, to, to do that. And uh they said he's lost his senses. And they were saying they kept on saying. They kept on he's mad. He's a madman. He's crazy. He's lost. He's out of his mind. I mean, he is just totally wacko. What happened to him? He's crazy. That's really what they're thinking. He's nuts. So they're going to have to carry him off. He can't control himself. We have to take care of him here. And they're concerned about his health too. Because they're not able to eat. (laughs) Not able to eat because of all the ministry that they're having to do. Oh... This this man who came from our hometown has lost his senses. And I'll tell you what, he's gone to extremes. He needs somebody to protect him. Now, this happens throughout Scripture. If um, you turn to Acts 26-24, you get a guy by the name of Paul. And he is before Festus. While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, <laughs> get that, a loud voice. Can I say this? Paul, you're out of your mind. <laughs> your great learning is driving you mad. <laughs> a great loud voice. I mean, that's what he thought. He really thought that. Paul said, I'm not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus. But I utter words of sober truth. The king knows about these matters, and I speak to him. I'm not saying anything new here. You should know this. I speak to him with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. This has been done all over. Everybody has seen this. If you want to read the rest of that story, you can take that and do that this afternoon. <laughs> Interesting, Mary. Uh, well, there have been people through church history too. Um, I think John Bunyan would be one who was put in jail um, because he would preach the word, and uh, there was a church, the church from the state, and that's the only place where you're to have church. You can't have it out in the woods. You can't have it in somebody's home. You can't have it anywhere. You have to go to the Church of England. And so John Bunyan said, they're not teaching the Word of God there. I am going to preach the Word of God and whoever wants to be around. They'd come out there in the woods. Well, and and they gave him an option. Hey, listen, Bunyan, you have to stop the preaching. But if you stop the preaching, we'll, we'll, we'll let you go. But if you don't stop the preaching, we're going to put you in jail. And so they did. And then they offered him to get out. And he wouldn't do it. And when he did get out, he kept preaching the Word and get arrested. That was John Bunyan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, one of the most successful books 
in the history of mankind, maybe the most best-selling book there is besides the Bible, of course. I'm just saying that um, he made an impact. He was just a tinkerer. He was a nobody. And look what God made of him. Martin Luther? I imagine people called him mad, didn't they, whenever he did what he did. Aren't you thankful that Martin Luther did what he did? If it wouldn't have been a man that God raised up, we would still be in a bondage where a system is preaching something else than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Teaching a religion, but not Christ. William Carey, the great missionary, who took the gospel to people who had never heard it before. Of course, you think uh, William Carey, you know, at, at uh, times people thought he was nuts doing that. And going to a place he didn't even know where he is really going and who he is going to be meeting there. I mean, it was just totally something foreign. And uh, he brought the gospel to people who had never heard it. And one, of the, one of the great missionaries that the church has known. But people thought he was nuts. These are coming from church people. <laughs> church people. We're not just talking about his family or something. But people that... Um, should have known better. Other Christians can say that you're fanatic. Well, if I'm a fanatic for Christ, fantastic. Keep calling me a fanatic. Keep calling whatever you want. If you're on fire for God, you have a desire to be on fire for God, many believers, believers are going to see you as fanatic and you're taking this a little too far. Right? It's okay to have a little religion, but you need to stop it on Sunday. And then after that, you can have a, your rest of the week. And then when you, you have, do your church day. Right? A little bit far. Well, that's how they viewed Christ. That's how his family was thinking. Listen, you go to, you know, we, we teach the right things and you do your the Sabbath thing. And we, we've always done that at the synagogue. But that needs to shut down through the week. Well, it shows that they thought they knew Jesus. There are a lot of people that think they know Jesus, aren't there? They have their own ideas of what Jesus is. Jesus is a loving, sweet, gentle man. Everybody has their opinions. But the thing is, they're not in tune with what the Scripture says about who Jesus is. Albert Schweitzer, anybody heard of him? Well, that man must have known Jesus. Well, he said that Jesus had a messianic delusion. He was deluded. He attempted to turn the wheel of history, Schweitzer said, only to have it turn and crush him. Wow, I thought you were intelligent, Albert Schweitzer. Yeah, up to a certain point. That intelligence means nothing to eternity if you don't take that intelligence and put it into your heart and live it out, right? Many opinions of Christ. The family thought he was a madman. A madman. Really. Seriously. If Christ was mad, then we as Christians need more of Christ's madness. Don't we? We need to be his madness. J.R. Miller said this. I think it's really terrific. If there were more of this insanity, 
there would not be so many unsaved souls dying under the very shadow of our churches. It would not be so hard to get missionaries and money to send the gospel to the dark continents. There would not be so many empty pews in our churches and so many long pauses in our prayer meetings. It'd be a glorious thing if all Christians were beside themselves as the Master was, or as Paul was. It's a far worse insanity which, in this world, never gives a thought to any other world, which, moving continually among lost men, never pities them, nor thinks of their lost condition, nor puts forth any effort to save them. Wow. He's saying, we're... We as Christians are mad if we're if we are not having the uh, pitiable thinking on their lost condition and taking mercy on them and giving them truth and and the things that they need. The first opinion of an unbelieving world is that Christ really is a madman. <laughs> That's really where that many would take him as that. So, that's one thing. We leave it with madman in verses... Uh, oops, back to Mark, right? Twenty. Twenty-one. Now we move into verse 22. And here's another group of people. Now we've seen family. Now we'll look at... Another side here, and it's the second opinion of unbelievers, is that he's a tool of Satan. Unbelievable. The scribes were a highly trained legal specialist who should have known the Bible. Right? That's what they did. They, the law is the law right here. They of all people should have known. They had their minds already made up. He's not only mad... But he is bad. How about that? He's a madman and he is a bad man. Family says mad and these religious people say he's bad. Their opinion of Jesus had two parts. The fact is, they couldn't deny what was happening. I mean, it's right in front of their eyes. They, they can't say, well, he didn't do that. Because <laughs> he did. I mean, everybody sees it. If they'd said that, people would have hauled them off. Too bad they didn't. They couldn't deny that, right. But so they would try to tell how it happened. They're, gonna, they're so good that they're going to tell how this happened. Yeah, that happened, but I'll tell you how it happened. Not only do we have opposition now from his own ranks we're have a, and, and own families, but we have to be aware of the fact that the whole world really, for the most part, is against Jesus Christ. And if you follow Christ, guess what? They're going to be against you. He said, No, a Christian deserves the best and they need to be bowing down to us. <laughs> That's not going to happen. The enemies of Christ are still here today. We see them right here. These religious people are enemies of Christ. Now, right here in verse 22, and we know about the scribes, right? Came down from Jerusalem. That means Jerusalem up on the mountain. They're up, up pretty high. And they come down from that elevation into Capernaum. They're going to be there. They're sent to go there. Not to 
take some notes and see what he's saying again. Maybe he's changed his mind. No. They're there to actually destroy him. They're there to not only get something on him, but to actually bring him in. <clears throat> Whatever it takes, this man has to be destroyed. And you have now, when, when we go into this part, we see what this title is dealing with, the unpardonable sin. And there's probably not anybody here that's never heard about that. And probably all of you have heard about 10,000 different um, ideas of what that means. And so, yes, Dennis is going to stand here before you and tell you exactly what that means. Uh, I might attempt it. I think we can get pretty close to what that means, though. There might be some variances. Many commentators have different ideas. I'm not going to go through all of them. But this is the, uh, the section that we approach that has stumped up so many people. And I'm not kidding you. Uh, and probably a big number of us here today have stumbled over that passage and thinking, I wonder if that could be me. I wonder if I blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And if I did, then I can never have salvation. I just, I'm not so sure. You know, I, I'm sure some of you have thought that, and because many Christians do. So don't feel alone if you can say, "Yeah, that was me," but I'm not telling anybody. <laughs> or somebody say, "Yeah, that was me." It, it, it's it's not a big deal in in the sense that it's okay if if you're a Christian uh, and, and you trusted in Christ, you don't have anything to worry about. But if you've not trusted Christ, you could be something in this mode. We'll see what that is, though. We'll try to see what's happening here. Um, what we're getting down to is this unpardonable sin, uh, dealing with forgiveness and hardness of heart and such. And, uh, of course, we say um, there is definitely a spiritual darkness at that time, spiritual darkness today. And because of the spiritual darkness, they accuse him of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. If, if, if he's doing it, okay, he's doing it, that's amazing. This is miraculous. But you know what? It didn't come from God. That's the only other alternative they can do. If they say it's from God, then, I mean, their whole ministry is really is on the border of being shot. Jesus doesn't need these guys, you know? And that ministry was going to be replaced. <laughs> it's going to be done away with. But it continues on, in a sense, I guess. Well, they accused him of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, which means Beelzebub is the lord of dung flies. Or he's the lord of filth. It's not a pretty word. So when they say that word, everybody knew what it meant. And that's what they said. He did this through Beelzebub. You're casting out devils by the devil. Uh, the enemies of Christ. How do you think they took to that? Well, that's, that's really what they're thinking or at least the best explanation that they can come up with. And I think what it's saying is their hearts are so hardened, even when the truth has been spoken and has been demonstrated right before their very eyes, they deny the very one that is the Savior 
And so they're opposing him and calling him wicked, demonic. They're rejecting him totally outright. He's like he's the son of Satan. I'm a graphic can we get here? He's a demonized sorcerer dealing with the black arts. How about that? That's where they put him. This is Jesus Christ, the Holy One. Even the demons have been saying that. He is the Holy One. We we spent a whole week dealing with the Holy One of God. So they made him out to be evil. A horribly corrupt tool of Satan is what he is. Now let's turn to Matthew 12 and look at the parallel account. Basically the same. We'll not be able to pick up something here. Matthew 12, verse 22. Um, Here's the context here that Matthew has. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, "This uh, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? Is this the son of David? I'm thinking he's the son of David. This must be the Messiah. But when the Pharisees heard this, there they are, right there, they said, this man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. See, you got a whole crowd saying, this must be the Messiah. Is this the Messiah? Is this the son of David? I think he is. That's what they're saying. That's the context. Now you read on down and you can see it. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. Any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If, by Be- if I by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Ooh, whoa. If this is really what it is, the kingdom of God is here right now. And you are denying me, and you are going to be going to hell. Your sins are not going to be forgiven. How can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds a strong man and then he'll plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. This is the loving Jesus. He is loving and gracious and merciful. And He's also very just and holy. And if people will sit there and call Him a son of Satan, and not just because it's just Him where He's offended, but it's because the very Spirit of God has been working here in an amazing way and they attribute it to the Lord of the flies. Now that's Matthew's account so we can see this probably was the context of what was happening here. And this is why they said what they said because the people are going around saying and they're very jealous. You can imagine the jealousy of these people. They've always had the attraction from the people. They they were in the lights. And this man is stealing it from them. Now, we turn back to our Mark 3. There we get the accusation. Now we get the confrontation. It's Jesus who really confronts this issue. This encounter begins with the religious leaders, but actually 
Jesus is the one who's taking charge here. The carpenter is going to step forth. This is our hero. This is our Jesus. He wins every time. I love to be on a winning side. We win, folks. We win. So the carpenter steps out into the battle. He's out on the battlefield. And what we see here is the conflict of good and evil. We see this story develop in the book of Genesis. Right when the first sin happened in Genesis 3. And we see the story. We've seen the creation. Then we see the fall of man. Man was created good. But he fell. And from there on out, the story happens. The conflict between God, good, and evil. And mankind has been in that battle ever since. Sad thing is, most of the billions of people who ever lived here never knew they were in a battle. We are still in a battle. We know who the captain is. We know who will win. He's winning now. He won at the cross. But we haven't seen that fully take place yet, have we? But we know that's the focus of it all. This is the heart of the conflict right there, folks. This is what's going on in the world. You wonder what's going on in uh, politics, in the political realm? Why are things going down the way they're going? Because that's the world. And the world is our enemy. But we don't take on the world with guns. We don't take on the world with cannons and tanks. It's a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual warfare. So, it goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on. The battle continues. We're at the heart of the conflict. What in the world is happening? Why haven't we been able to stop the things that are going on? Surely we can do it. Man can stop this stupid craziness that's happening in our own country. I have never seen our country go off as far as it ever has been, just looking at history. It never really has been that real pretty, has it? But it is worse than ever before. What's going on? Why can't we stop it? And then someone starts thinking, but I can't even stop my jealousy. I have a hard time stopping my slander. I have a hard time stopping these cruel thoughts that I have. I have a hard time stopping this anger that I have. And the way that I treat people... Uh, do you see what the real battle is? That is the heart of the matter. And if we take it to Christ, then He puts things into perspective. Why things are going the way that they are. And Jesus is always the answer, isn't He? So when you have pressure, where do you take it? Take it to Him. Always starts with Him. Always Him. It's not about us. Forget yourself. Take up the cross and follow me. That's what he told the disciples and that's what he tells all the disciples. Folks, I've got bad news for you. <laughs> it's, it's not about you at all. It's not about me. Man, once we start losing ourself, we're so concerned 
about how we get offended and about our own selves, Jesus will take care of us. Forget yourself. Take up the cross. That's a, take up the cross. That's an instrument of death. Not a little cross that you buy at Alpha and Omega. <laughs> Can't buy them there anymore. Those are okay if you have one on around your neck. That's good. But it should remind us, oh, that's that was to kill people and torture them. Take up the cross. Follow me. You know where Jesus went? <laughs> he went to where the people were at. And where the opposition was going to be. That's us. We have opposition. Whether you like it or not, you're in a war. You look at Ephesians chapter 6 and it'll tell you what's going on there. Put on your uh, warfare. Put on your armor because it's a fierce battle. Jesus is taking on right here and He's confronting them. Gets into dealing with parables. Verse 23, And He called them to Himself. Began speaking to them in parables. Now, sometimes parables are going to be something that you know, it's it's a like a heavenly truth brought down into earthly illustrations so people can understand heavenly things. He's going to put this in a way that's very clear here. Sometimes the parables were meant to stumble people, but here he uses different illustrations. He's, he makes it very clear to them. They, they can't deny what he's saying. How can Satan cast out Satan? So he starts with that. How can Satan help himself if he does that? That's stupid. And he says, okay, get a, get a shot of this. If a kingdom is divided, what's going to happen? It's going to crumble. If a house is divided, uh, let's say, let's just take a family in a house. If you have problems in there and the fr- problems get worse and worse and then it becomes, you've got a civil war happening in there, right? And that, that family, or just between a husband and wife, that family can crumble and disintegrate. A city, as we saw in Matthew. Same thing. You, you can have a civil war going on. So, uh, he, he's saying, they won't be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he can't stand. But he's if he's doing that, he's casting out all the demons around here, then, you know, he's done. He's finished. Why would he do that? Do you think they have anything to say with this? Do you think they have an answer? I mean, he's just pummeled them right here. I mean, he's just blown them away. They have no answer. They never could answer truth. So he says this. Okay. He uses this story. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds a strong man and then he'll plunder his house. Jesus is saying what? Jesus is saying he's the one that's coming into the house. In a sense, he's the robber. And you have a strong man in the house, and then you have his property. The only way he can go and seize that property is to tie him up. Some man has to, somebody has to tie him up. Well, in this case, uh, that would be Satan's victims. Look at all the victims that he has, right? So Jesus disarms the strong man to free those who are held in captivity. He liberates them to their rightful owners. Genesis 3.15, he spoke about that. A 
long back in Genesis, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, as he's talking, God is talking to the enemy here, uh, the serpent. He's saying to the servant, I'll put enmity, strife, between you and the woman, and between your seed, Satan's seed, and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. That's pretty damaging. And you shall bruise him on the heel. <laughs> well, that's what's happening right now as Jesus has entered this world. Look in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose. What? To destroy the works of the devil. Romans 16.20 Alright, it's the end of Romans. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Now this is after the death, burial, resurrection, and the ascension. Paul is writing this letter to the Romans. And right near the end of the letter, he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan. He beat him at the cross, did he not? But there will be a day when you cash in the stamps. <laughs> Some of you might remember the uh, green, S&H green stamps, you know, cashing those in. He, he has everything that he needs there. And he's done. And he was making an impact right there when he was here on earth because he was coming in and casting out demons by, it must have been the thousands, folks. I mean, it was demonically possessed that nation was at that time for the most part. Um, Hebrews chapter 2. So there was Paul saying there's going to be a time. And he was expecting maybe any time, any time, any time soon. He looked for the Lord's return at any time. He didn't know when he was going to return. And we're still doing the same thing. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. We know because of the resurrection we now have life. Nothing will ever kill us from eternity. Our flesh will die, but our spirit man will go on and we'll even have a, a resurrection body to come. So we'll be physical and spiritual. Kind of like what we are now, but much, much, much better, right? But, but do you see there, there, there is the sense that um, he was rendered powerless right there at the cross. That's where he beat him. But Satan still roars about like a lion, seeking someone to devour. Ephesians 6 says, put on your spiritual warfare. Put on, be ready for the combat, right? Have your armor on. Throughout Scripture, we're warned of that. So it's not that Satan is bound up and now he can't do anything. He's loose. He's doing whatever he wants. He's the prince of the power of the air. But he's been beaten. Jesus is going to come back and claim the rights to this world and to His people. 
That's what we look forward to. So there was a neutralization kind of going on there when Jesus was here. There's a cosmic conflict between the dramatic power of God and the puny muscles of Satan. (laughs) He didn't have a chance. It's not that they're duking it out and somehow God's going to win, but man, it's going to be hard. And, you know, Satan is, is almost equal with God. You know, in our modern evangelical realm, and I think throughout history, it's kind of been presented that way. God is up here, but Satan's like this. Satan is a created being. God uses Satan. He has nothing on God at all. I mean, my. there is, But there is that warfare going between good and evil. We are not the ones that can duke it out with demons, spiritual beings. One of these days, we will be over them. Right now, we can't take on demons. But we can through the power of Christ. And He takes care of it. We just call upon the captain. So He's confronting them. And He's telling them about, uh, you know, this is what God, the Son of God was manifested for, that He might destroy the works of the devil. And that's kind of the context of what's going on here in our Mark 3. We need to realize we're in the face of opposition that is wicked, that it's satanic, and as it increases, and I believe it is, I think we're seeing it more and more manifested than, than ever in our lives. Near the end of the age, we are expecting the return of the Lord Jesus. We need to assert that victory of Calvary that is absolute. Not only must we assert it, we must absolutely believe in that, let it be affecting our lives. Jesus left them speechless. <laughs> I didn't have a chance. He was done. He, I think he illustrated it perfectly, didn't he? Yes, he did. He couldn't have come up with a better one because that's what he did. Everything that he does is always perfect. Everything that he says, does, everything, everything, every little moment. Wouldn't you love to be that way, knowing that it's perfect? That will happen in a glorified body. We'll never do anything wrong again. Never anything sinful. It'll always be right. It'll always be perfect. Not so here. We like that. We like to be that way. Sometimes we hit and miss. But the power of sin has been broken. That's the key, folks. The power of sin is broken. It doesn't have to rule over you. The power of death has been broken. It doesn't have any power over us anymore, does it? It has been done at the cross. So there's a warning. Jesus gives a warning. And and now it looks like I'm going to have to move on with this warning real quick. We're in uh, Mark 3, right? I have to tell myself that. That's in the wrong chapter here. Okay. Truly I say to you, verse 28, all sins shall be forgiven, sons of men. And whatever blasphemes they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Here we go. Jesus says that all blasphemies, all sins will be forgiven. Praise the Lord. That is absolute. Except, of course, the sin against the Holy Spirit is found here. (laughs) Now, what do we do with that? It sounds like he's contradicting himself. He's saying, all sin will be forgiven. But there's one that's not. You can blaspheme the Son of God and be forgiven and go to heaven. But you can't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Here's the question. Is the Lord Jesus who is the very Son of God, is He lesser than the Holy Spirit? 
all. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they're all equal, aren't they? Perfectly equal. They have different roles, they do, but they're equal. They're all persons. And that's not the case. And we know that's not the case. We know that they are co-equal in the Godhead. It must mean that the Lord Jesus here is talking about not speaking blasphemy so much or even thinking thoughts of blasphemy. What we have here is something much deeper. Much deeper. Just because you might say something out of your mouth doesn't mean that whoop, God can't forgive that. He can forgive everything else, but ooh, not that one. Yeah. Well, what is the unpardonable sin? Well, we know He bound the strong man. Came into His house, stole His goods. Gives Him this parable. It lays down the principle in verse 28 to 30, which we just read, the unpardonable sin. What's all this mean? I could say a lot of different explanations. Somebody might say, I think I've committed the unpardonable sin. Some people say it's blaspheming the Spirit. So if the Holy Spirit does something and you say it's not a God, then that blasphemy has happened and now you're going to go to hell no matter what. Others say it's attributing the work of God to Satan. Or it's not of God and actually it's the devil doing it. That's the unpardonable sin, some would say. Now is that true? I think a better question is what are we to understand here as the core of what these opposing people, these rulers of Judaism, what they did and what they said to Jesus. It's not so much to do with words coming out of people's mouths, even though that shows something. It shows the attitude. It's an attitude that they had. And what is that attitude? Well, if you take the wider context, and we read in Matthew 12 earlier, we, and that's where this is taking place here in our Mark 3, words were spoken by Jesus after He had healed the demoniac, remember? Who was both blind and dumb, right? He's blind and dumb and He healed him. Perhaps this man is indeed the son of David, the Messiah, people are saying. And they were testifying His true identity. People were saying that. Responding to God's ministry of the Holy Spirit in their midst. They may not be saying the Holy Spirit, but they know there's been some kind of power that has happened through Christ. And yet the scribes and the Pharisees responded by taking an opportunity to say that miracle was done by the power of the devil himself. So the wider context in our Matthew 12 is that the ordinary people recognize that Jesus is the Messiah and He was sent by the Spirit of God, but the scribes are refusing and they have hardened their hearts. They attributed the ministry to the devil. And the reason is, is because that attitude that kept swelling up, swelling up, you can harden your heart. God can then harden your heart like He did Pharaoh and He continued to harden His heart Some people can get immense revelation of who Jesus Christ is and yet not take Him into their lives. And there's a point where God says, that's it. So much revelation and then there will be condemnation. These men will be judged severely for what they knew. 
In Acts 7.51, Stephen said, You do always resist the Holy Spirit. They were sinning against the Holy Spirit in that manner. They had sinned against the Father. They had sinned against the Son. And all that they graciously had given them, but when it came to the point of Christ rising again, and then ascending, and then the Spirit of God coming, and the Holy Spirit witnessing to who Christ is through the apostles, and then people reject it. That's what goes on today. It's the end of the line for them. These guys are standing there. They've seen something of the work of God and the power of God. The Spirit of God had been happening there. They had blasphemed the Holy Spirit, the very... Uh, power and work of God as the Spirit uh, worked through them. Uh, it's a deliberate closing of the heart. Any man could have said, this has to be God. This has to be the Messiah. But they wouldn't accept this spiritual witness of who Jesus was. They were not going to uh, say that that was of God. Even Christians. Now, you can take Christians down through the ages, have been forced to blaspheme. Some failed. And I'm sure that they probably worried later that they committed this sin. But if they're true Christians, did they blaspheme the Holy Spirit? No. A Christian cannot do that. You might say some blasphemy, and, and God forbid that we ever do. There have been some horrible things that have come out of our, our mouths as Christians. And we ought to be absolutely ashamed of some of the language that can come out of our mouths. Now, never giving credence to that, but uh, if you're a Christian, you are His and you can't blaspheme the Spirit. Listen to me this morning. If you're a Christian or a non-Christian and you fear that you've ever committed this unpardonable sin, if you're a Christian, then it's sure proof that you didn't commit it. And if you're a non-Christian, it means the same thing because the offer is still there. You can trust in Christ. Anyone who has committed it, the one who truly has committed it, is past feeling. He doesn't have the feeling of that anymore. He doesn't even he doesn't care. He's past the caring. He's outright rejected the gospel, doesn't care. He's completely and permanently rejected it. We would never know when that is, but God does. I would never say somebody's blaspheming the Holy Spirit and they'll never be forgiven um, because God said, I, you know, I never know when that time is for that person. It may look like it. They might have done some of the worst things. Well, we go on performance a lot. Thank the Lord He goes on grace and mercy and love. But I, I will tell you, it's an ultimate, complete, utter rejection of the ministry of Christ that will take people to hell. Uh, these guys at that time, uh, they had seen it. They had experienced it. They were there. Um, so some say that that unpardonable sin can't happen because of that right there. Because they saw it. And they denied it. That was it for them. And that could very well be true. It was meant for that time. But I, I think there's a point where somebody has absolute light and revelation and at that particular point, they, it takes knowledge. It's knowledge about who God is. But then when they reject Him a final time, whenever God 
says that's it, as far as he's concerned, then we know that's it. If we're serving our king, opposition is certain. It can be from family, it can be friends, it can be satanic opposition, it can be the world. But the great message that we are preaching is the very gospel. And it offers salvation to those who, when they hear God's voice, like right here, and believe in His Word and repent, turn from their sins and turn to God. He's offering salvation, but He's also giving a warning because this could be the last time that you ever have any kind of feeling at all because He can take it and then harden it where that's it. We don't know when that is. I think that's what I get basically out of this message the most. If you don't use what God has given you, you know what He'll do? He'll take it. Never to give it back. I think even as far as Christians, if we don't use our gifts, He can just start taking them away if we don't use those. Now, it's really time to stop. And I'm going to stop. We didn't get to that next section. I was really wanting to get into that, that final part of the sandwich. You've got to have the last, the other side of the bread, don't you? It's the family. And we'll probably spend a little time on that next week and then go into uh, the parables because I don't want to skip a section. But it, it goes with this. And most, I've found out in commentaries, start right here and go from 31 through 35 and do a whole message on that. Anyway, we, we did quite a bit that was out of there. But um, it's time to stop. A load of stuff there. Uh, so many different topics that are entwined in the one topic, if you noticed. But um, why don't we uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank You for Your Word, Your truth. Thank You for Your Holy Spirit. Your Holy Spirit is the one who comes into our lives. And thank You for that, that we cannot ever blaspheme the Holy Spirit and not ever be forgiven. We are forgiven. Our sins are cast away. They are done with. Um, If we ever thought we blasphemed the Holy Spirit and uh, we were going to hell, well, we now know that that wasn't true. That really didn't happen. But we thought that. And there are passages that are very difficult and that can have many different ideas, but the main thing is people can receive total light and totally reject it. Thank You, Lord, for You are the One who came into our lives and turned on the light for us. We were dead and dark, and You turned us on. The Spirit of You came into us. We became people of God as we were adopted into the family. Thank you so much for that. And we demonstrate that now through our communion with you. In Jesus' name, amen.